San Francisco in the Roaring Twenties is a city that hasn't quite shaken her old self. Scratch the surface of civilization and out pumps the hot, chaotic blood of her Barbary Coast days. Sometimes somebody needs help bringing order back to this chaos, and that's where I come in. I work for the Federated Detective Agency. Sixty-three Audio and Rocket 88 Productions present Adventures of the Federated Tech Created by Pete Lutz and Mark Slade And adapted from stories by Dashiell Hammett Tonight's story The Tenth Clue Part One Dramatized by Pete Lutz I'd been called into the Gantford State on Russian Hill on a particular evening to speak to a Mr. Leopold Gantford at 9 p.m. on a particular matter. He wasn't home when I arrived, so I was waiting for him in the second-floor study, and waiting, and waiting. About 11 o'clock, his adult son, Charles Gantford, came in to apologize for his father's delay and ask if there was anything he could do. Then the phone rang with the news that the young man's father was dead, murdered, and now we were arriving at the Hall of Justice to speak to detectives. It hadn't been a pleasant drive. Neither of us spoke on the way. There were several questions that needed answering, but I hadn't wanted to distract him as he bent over the wheel of his car, sending it through the San Francisco streets at a terrific speed. So I hung on and kept quiet. Half a dozen police detectives were waiting for us when we reached the bureau. Ogar was in charge of the investigation. He's a bullet-headed detective sergeant who dresses like the village constable in a movie wide-brimmed black hat and all, but he's not to be put out of the reckoning on that account. Ogar and I had worked on two or three jobs together before and hit it off excellently. Mr. Gantford, I've got a number of things here I'd like you to look over carefully. To the best of your ability, tell me which ones belong to your father. But where is he? Do this first, and then you can see him. I looked at the things on the table while Charles Gantford made his selections. An empty jewel case, a memoranda book, three letters addressed to the dead man, plus some other papers, a bunch of keys, a fountain pen, two white linen handkerchiefs, two pistol cartridges, a gold pocket watch with a gold knife and gold pencil attached to it by a gold and platinum chain, two black leather wallets, one very new and the other worn, some money, both paper and silver, and a small portable typewriter, bent and twisted, and matted with hair and blood. Some of the other things were smeared with blood and some were clean. The, the things that her father's are, uh, the watch, the keys, the fountain pen, the memoranda book, the letters, and these papers, too. Oh, and that wallet, the older one. Yes, that's it. I've never seen any of the other things before. I don't know, of course, how much money he had with him tonight, so I, I can't say how much of this is his. Yes. We're sure none of the rest of this stuff was his. I don't think so, but I'm not sure... Whipple could tell you. He's father's valet. He's the man who let you in tonight. Yes. Whipple looked after father, and he'd know positively whether any of these other things belong to him or not. I'll call over to the house and ask this Whipple to come down right away. Is anything that your father usually carried with him missing? Anything of value? Not that I know of. All the things that he might have been expected to have with him seem to be here. What time did he leave the house? Before 7.30, uh, possibly as early as 7. Know where he was going? He didn't tell me, but 
I supposed he was going to call on Miss Dexter. Oh? The detectives' faces brightened and their eyes grew sharp. There are many, many murders with never a woman in them anywhere, but seldom a very conspicuous killing. Who is this Miss Dexter? She's, well, uh, well, father was on very friendly terms with her and her brother. He usually called on them, uh, on her, several evenings a week. In fact, I, I suspected that he intended marrying her. Who and what is she? Father became acquainted with them six or seven months ago. I've met them a few times, and I don't know them very well. Miss Creta Dexter, I judge to be about 23 years old, and her brother Madden is four or five years older. He's in New York now, or on his way there to transact some business for father. Did your father tell you he was going to marry her? No, but it was pretty obvious that he was very much... Uh, infatuated. We had some words over it a few days ago, last week. Not a quarrel, you understand, but words. From the way he talked, I feared that he meant to marry her. What do you mean, feared? Uh, <clears throat> I don't want to put the Dexters in a bad light to you. I don't think... I'm pretty sure they had nothing to do with fathers, uh, with this. But I don't care especially for them don't like them. You see, they're fortune hunters, I think. Father wasn't fabulously wealthy, but he had considerable means, and he was past 57, old enough for me to suspect that Creta Dexter was more interested in his money than in him. How about your father's will? The last one I know of, drawn up two or three years ago, left everything to my wife and me jointly. Uh, father's attorney could tell you if there was a later will, but I Hardly think there was. Uh, that's Murray Abernathy, uh, father's lawyer. Your father had retired from business, hadn't he? Yes, he turned operations over to me about a year ago. He had quite a few investments scattered around, but he wasn't actively engaged in the management of any concern. Ogar tilted his village constable hat back and scratched his bullet head reflectively for a moment. Then he looked at me. Anything else you want to ask? Yes. Mr. Gantvort, do you know or did you ever hear your father or anyone else speak of an Emil Bonfils? Mm, no. Did your father ever tell you that he'd received a threatening letter or that he'd been shot at on the street? No. Was your father in Paris in 1902? Very likely. He used to go abroad every year up until his retirement from business. Leopold Gantvort lay on the morgue slab with the top of his head beaten into a red and pulpy mess. His son positively identified him and stayed to fill out some papers. Ogar and I left him there and returned to the Hall of Justice afoot. What's this deep stuff you're pulling about Emil Bonfils in Paris in 1902? This. The dead man phoned the agency this afternoon and said he'd received a threatening letter from an Emil Bonfils, with whom he'd had trouble in Paris in 1902. He also said that Bonfils had shot at him the previous evening in the street. He wanted somebody to come around and see him about it tonight. And he said that under no circumstances were the police to be let in on it, that he'd rather have Bonfils get him than have the trouble made public. 
That's all he would say over the phone, and that's how I happened to be on hand when Charles Gantford was notified of his father's death. Now that's something. Wait till we get back to headquarters. I'll show you something. Whipple, the elder Gantford's valet, was waiting when we arrived at headquarters. His face was, at first glance, as smooth and mask-like as when he'd admitted me to the house on Russian Hill earlier in the evening. But beneath his perfect servant's manner, he was twitching and trembling. We took him into the little office where we had questioned Charles Gantford. He verified all that the dead man's son had told us. He was positive that neither the typewriter, the jewel case, the two cartridges, nor the newer wallet had belonged to his employer. Yes, Sergeant. Miss Dexter called the house three times this evening. At about eight o'clock, at nine, and again at nine-thirty. She asked for Mr. Leopold each time, but left no message. What do you make of those calls? I believe that Miss Dexter had been expecting Mr. Leopold, and he had not arrived. What's your opinion of the Dexters, both the sister and the brother? I do not like to speak ill of anybody, sir. Did Mr. Gantvort mention this threatening letter, or having been shot at, or mention of a certain party named Emil Bonfils? No, sir. I know nothing of that. Mr. Leopold was out that night from eight until midnight. I'm afraid I didn't see him closely upon his return to say if he seemed excited or not. Is there anything that you know of that Ganford had on his person tonight which isn't among the things on the desk? No, sir. Everything seems to be here. Watch and chain, money, memoranda book, wallet, keys, handkerchiefs, fountain pen, everything that I know of. Speaking of money, how much did he usually carry? Usually he'd keep about a hundred dollars in his pockets. Did his son Charles go out tonight? No, sir. Mr. Charles and Mrs. Gantvert were at home all evening. Positive? Hmm. Oh, yes, sir. I'm fairly certain. But I know Mrs. Gantvert wasn't out. To tell the truth, I didn't see Mr. Charles from about... Eight o'clock until he came downstairs with this gentleman at eleven. But I'm fairly certain he was home all evening. I think Mrs. Gantvort said he was. Then O'Gar put another question to Whipple, one that puzzled me at the time. What kind of collar buttons did Mr. Gantvort wear? You mean Mr. Leopold? Yes. Plain gold ones, all in one piece. They had a London jeweler's mark on them. Would you know them if you saw them? Yes, sir. We let Whipple go home then. When O'Gar and I were alone with this desk load of evidence that didn't mean anything at all to me yet, I suggested, don't you think it's time you were loosening up and telling me what's what? I guess so. Listen, a man named Lagerquist, a, a grocer, was driving through Golden Gate Park tonight and passed a machine standing on a dark road with his lights out. He thought there was something funny about the way the man in it was sitting at the wheel, so he told the first patrolman he met about it. All right. 
the patrolman investigated and found Gantwort sitting at the wheel, dead, with his head smashed in, and this dingus, the, the typewriter, on the seat beside him. I was at a quarter of ten. The doc says Gantvort was killed, his skull crushed, with this typewriter. Makes sense. The dead man's pockets, we found, had been all turned inside out. And all this stuff on the desk, except this new wallet, was scattered about in the car. Some of it on the floor and some on the seats. This money was there, too. Nearly a hundred dollars of it. Among the papers was this. It's typed. LFG. I want what is mine. 6,000 miles and 21 years are not enough to hide you from the victim of your treachery. I mean to have what you stole. And it's signed E.B. Well, LFG could be Leopold F. Gantford, and E.B. could be Emil Bonfils. 21 years is the time between 1902 and 1923, and 6,000 miles is roughly the distance between Paris and San Francisco. Let me take a look at these other things again. I laid the letter down and picked up the jewel case. It was made of black imitation leather, lined with white satin, and unmarked in any way. Then I examined the cartridges. There were two of them, Smith & Wesson 45 caliber, and deep crosses had been cut into their soft noses, an old trick that makes the bullet spread out like a saucer when it hits. These in the car, too? Yep. And this. Tuft of blonde hair. What? Huh. Let me see. Okay, they're all about two inches in length, and they've been clipped, not pulled out by the roots. There seems to be an endless stream of things. Any more? Yeah. Take a closer look at the newer wallet, the one that Charles Gantvort and Whipple agreed was not the dead man's. That was found in the road three or four feet from the car. Ogar slid the wallet over to me. It was of a cheap quality, with neither manufacturer's name nor owner's initials on it. Inside were two $10 bills, three small newspaper clippings, and a typewritten list of names and addresses, with Gantvorts at the top. You see those clippings? They're all out of the personals column. Uh Uh-huh. From three different newspapers. How can you tell? The typeface is different for each one. So it is. Must be nice to be a sleuth. Read them out loud. See if you can make any sense out of them. Haven't you read them already? Yeah, but hearing them is different from reading them to myself. Maybe something will click. Eh, maybe. All right, uh, the first one says, George, everything is fixed, don't wait too long. Signed, DDD. Anything? Keep going. You got a nice voice. Anybody tell you that? Very funny. Okay, the next one goes, RHT, they do not answer. Signed, Flo. And the last one says, Cappy, 12 on the dot and look sharp, signed, bingo. Did that help? Don't do nothing for me. Here, take a look at the type list of names and addresses. Okay, after Gantvort, there's Quincy Heathcote, 1223 South Jason Street, Denver. B.D. Thornton at an address in Dallas. Luther G. Randall, Portsmouth. J.H. Boyd Willis in Boston. And finally, Hannah Hindmarsh at 218 East 79th Street, Cleveland. What else? I was sorry I asked. The detective sergeant's supply hadn't been exhausted yet. The dead man's collar buttons had been taken out, both front and back. 
though his collar and tie were still in place, and his left shoe was gone. We hunted high and low all around, but didn't find either shoe or collar buttons. I was prepared for anything now. Is that all? What the hell do you want? Ain't that enough? How about fingerprints? No luck. All we found belonged to the dead man. How about the machine he was found in? A coupe. Belonging to a Dr. Wallace Girargo. He phoned in at six this evening that it had been stolen from near the corner of McAllister and Polk Streets. We're checking up on him, but I think he's all right. The things that Whipple and Charles Ganford had identified as belonging to the dead man told us nothing. We went over them carefully, but to no advantage. The memorandum book contained many entries, but they all seemed totally foreign to the murder. The letters were just as irrelevant. What do we know about the murder weapon, the typewriter? Only that the serial number was removed, filed out of the frame. Well, what do you think? Well, I think we need to find Monsieur Emil Bonfils. It wouldn't hurt to do that. I guess our best bet is to get in touch with those five people on that list with Gantvort's name at the top. Suppose that's a murder list? Maybe this Bonfils is out to get all of them. Maybe. We'll get a hold of them anyway. Maybe we'll find that some of them have already been killed. But whether they have been killed or are to be killed or not, it's a sense they have some connection with this affair. I'll get off a bunch of telegrams to the agency's branches asking to have the names on the list checked out. I'll try to have those clippings traced, too. What, what time is it? Chapter 4. <sighs> what say we knock off and get some sleep? I'll leave word for the department's expert to compare the typewriter with that letter signed E.B. and with that list to see if they were written on it. I guess they were, but we'll make sure. I'll have the park searched all around where we found Gantford as soon as it gets light enough to see, and maybe the missing shoe and the collar buttons will be found. And I'll have a couple of the boys out calling on all the typewriter shops in the city to see if they can get a line on this one. See you later. I stopped at the nearest telegraph office and got off a wad of messages. Then I went home to dream of nothing even remotely connected with crime or the detecting business. At 11 o'clock that same morning, when, brisk and fresh with five hours sleep under my belt, I arrived at the police station detective bureau, I found Sergeant O'Gar slumped down at his desk, staring dazedly at a black shoe, half a dozen collar buttons, a rusty flat key, and a rumpled newspaper, all lined up before him. What's all this? Souvenir of your wedding? Might as well be. Listen to this. One of the porters at the Siemens National Bank found a package in the vestibule when he started cleaning up this morning. It was this shoe, Gantvort's missing one, wrapped in this sheet of a five-day-old Philadelphia record, and with these collar buttons and this old key in it. The heel of the shoe, you'll notice, has been pried off and is still missing. Whipple had been in and identified it all right, along with two of the collar buttons, but he never saw the key before. 
These other four collar buttons are new and common gold rolled ones. The key, well, it don't look like it's had much use for a long time. What do you make of all that? I, uh, I can't make anything of it. How did the porter happen to turn the stuff in? Oh, he reads the morning papers. The whole story was there. All about the missing shoe and the collar buttons and all. What did you learn about the typewriter? The letter and the list were written with it right enough, but we haven't been able to find where it came from yet. We checked up on the doc who owns the coop, and he's in the clear. We accounted for all his time last night. Lagerquist, the grocer who found Gantvort, seems to be all right, too. What did you do? Haven't had any answers to the wires I sent last night. I dropped in at the agency on my way down this morning and got four operatives out, covering the hotels and looking up all the people named Bonfils they can find. There are two or three families by that name listed in the directory. Also, I sent our New York branch of wire to have the steamship records searched to see if an animal Bonfils had arrived recently, and I put a cable through to our Paris correspondent to see what he could dig up over there. Also, it's Bonfils. What is? The name. It's French, and we've been pronouncing it Bonfils. So? That's what it looks like to me. To me, too, but Dick Foley, who's Canadian and whose mother is from Quebec, told me this morning it's pronounced Bonfils. I ain't adding one more thing to this caper. If it's all the same to you, the guy's name is Bonfils, and I'm going to keep calling him Bonfils. Fine by me. What should we do while we wait for the wires to get answered? I guess we ought to see uh, Gantvort's lawyer. What's his name? Abernathy. And that Dexter woman before we do anything else. I guess so. Let's tackle the lawyer first. He's the most important one, the way things stand. Murray Abernathy, attorney at law, was a long, stringy, slow-spoken old gentleman who still clung to starched bosom shirts. He was too full of what he thought were professional ethics to give us as much help as we'd expected, but by letting him talk, letting him ramble along in his own way, we did get a little information out of him. What we got amounted to this. The late Mr. Gantfort and Miss Creta Dexter had intended being married this coming Wednesday. Mr. Charles Gantfort, the son, as you know, and Miss Dexter's brother, Madden, were both opposed to the marriage, it seems. As a result, Mr. Ganford and Miss Dexter planned to be wed secretly in Oakland and then to catch a boat to the Orient that same afternoon. Their combined hope was that by the time their honeymoon was over, they could return to a son and a brother who had become resigned to the marriage. <clears throat> a new will was drawn up but wasn't signed yet, that left half of Leopold Gantvort's estate to his new wife and the other half to his son and daughter-in-law. Yes, Miss Dexter was aware that this new will had not been signed. She also knew, of course, that the old will was still in force, which left everything to Charles and his wife the Ganford estate amounts to, oh, say, about a million and a half in cash value. Emil Bonfuls? No, I'm sorry, I never heard of him. No, Mr. Ganford 
told me of no threats of murder made against him. Heavens no. I'm sorry. I can tell you nothing that throws any light upon the nature of the thing that this letter accuses Mr. Ganforth of stealing. And now, gentlemen, if there's nothing else... From Abernathy's office, Ogar and I went to Krita Dexter's apartment in a new and expensively elegant building only a few minutes' walk from the Gantford residence. Miss Dexter was small and in her early 20s. The first thing you noticed about her was her eyes. Large, deep, the color of amber, and pupils that were never at rest. Continuously, they changed size, expanded and contracted, ranging incessantly from the size of pinheads to an extent that threatened to blot out the amber irises. If this wasn't enough, her every movement was feline, slow, smooth, and sure. This effect was heightened by the way she wore her hair, which was thick and tawny. Mr. Ganfort and I were to have been married the day after tomorrow. His son and daughter-in-law were both opposed to the marriage, as was my brother Madden. They all seemed to think the difference between our ages was too great. So, to avoid any unpleasantness, we had planned to be married quietly and then go abroad for a year or more, feeling sure that they would all have forgotten their grievances by the time we returned. Charles told us that his father had sent your brother off to New York to conduct some business for him. Was this to ensure that he couldn't try to stop the wedding? Yes, that's correct. It was something to do with the disposal of Mr. Gantford's interest in a steel mill. Madden lived here with me, and it would have been impossible for me to have made any preparations for the trip without him seeing them. Was Mr. Gadford here last night? No. I expected him. We were going out. He usually walked over, as it's only a few blocks. When eight o'clock came and he hadn't arrived, I telephoned his house, and Whipple told me that he'd left nearly an hour before. I called up again twice after that. Then this morning, I, I called up again before I'd seen the papers. And I was told that he... That catch in her voice was the only sign of sorrow she displayed throughout the interview. The impression of her we'd received from Charles Gantford and Whipple had prepared us for a more or less elaborate display of grief on her part. But she disappointed us. There was nothing crude about her work. She didn't even turn on the tears for us. Was Mr. Gantford here night before last? Yes. He came over a, a little after eight and stayed until nearly twelve. We didn't go out. Did he walk over and back? Yes, so far as I know. Did he ever say anything to you about his life being threatened? No. Do you know Emil Bonfils, perhaps pronounced Bonfils? No. Ever hear Mr. Ganford speak of him? No. At what hotel is your brother staying in New York? Rita Dexter's restless black pupils spread out abruptly as if they were about to overflow into the whites of her eyes. That was the first clear indication of fear I'd seen. But outside of those telltale pupils, her composure was undisturbed. I don't know. When did he leave San Francisco? Thursday. Four days ago. Ogar and I walked six or seven blocks in silence after we left Krita Dexter's apartment. And then he spoke. A sleek kitten, that dame. Rub her the right way and she'll purr pretty. Rub her the wrong way and look out for the claws. What did that flash of her eyes when I asked about her brother tell you? 
Something, but I don't know what. It wouldn't hurt to look him up and see if he's really in New York. If he's there today, it's a cinch he wasn't here last night. Even the mail planes take 26 or 28 hours for the trip. We'll do that. It looks like the Dexter woman wasn't any too sure that her brother wasn't in on the killing. And there's nothing to show that Bonfils didn't have help. I can't figure Krita being in on the murder, though. She knew the new will hadn't been signed. There'd be no sense in working yourself out of that three-quarters of a million berries. We sent a lengthy telegram to the Continental's New York branch and then dropped in at the agency to see if any replies had come to the wires I'd got off the night before. They had. The operative who decoded them summed things up for us. None of the people whose names appeared on your typewritten list were found. Not the least trace of any of them. Two of the addresses given were altogether wrong. There are no houses with those numbers on those streets in those cities. And there never have been. And the bad news kept piling up. Nobody had seen Bonfils on the street, nor heard a gunshot fired in the vicinity on the night before the murder. No one had seen Gantvord being picked up in a coupé. The servants at Gantvord's house knew of nothing owned by the victim that might fit into the hollowed-out heel of a shoe. O'Gara and I returned to the agency in time to receive a wire from the New York branch, saying that none of the steamship companies had any record of an Emil Bonfils arriving from either England, France, or Germany within the past six months. The local operatives who'd been searching the city for Bonfils came up empty-handed. Their investigations had definitely cleared 11 persons named Bonfils in San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, and Alameda. None of these people investigated knew anyone named Emil Bonfils. After a quiet, grouchy dinner with Ogar, in which neither of us spoke six words apiece, we returned to the agency to find another wire that had come in from New York. Matt and Dexter arrived McAlpin Hotel this morning with power of attorney to sell Gantvort interest in BFNF Iron Corporation. Denies knowledge of Emil Bonfils or murder. Expects to finish business and leave for San Francisco tomorrow. It's a funny one, all right. It sure is. We got nine clues, and none of them have got us a damned thing. Number one, the dead man called up you people and told you that he'd been threatened and shot at by an Emil Bonfils that he'd had a run-in with in Paris a long time ago. You feel free to join in. Okay, number two, the typewriter he was killed with and that the letter and list was typed with. No luck on tracing it yet. What the hell kind of weapon is that anyway? It looks like this fellow Bonfils got hot and killed Gantvort with the first thing he put his hand on. But what was the typewriter doing in the stolen car? And why were the numbers filed off? Search me. Number three, the threatening letter, fitting in with what Gantvort had said over the phone that afternoon. Number four, those two bullets with the crosses cut into their snoots. Number five, the jewel case. Number six, that bunch of yellow hair. Number seven. The fact that the dead man's shoe and collar buttons had been carried away. Number eight, the wallet with two $10 bills, three clippings, and the list in it found in the road. And number nine, 
Finding the shoe the next day, wrapped up in a five-day-old Philadelphia paper, and with the missing collar buttons, plus four more, and a rusty key in it. That's the list. <sighs> if they mean anything at all, they mean that Emil Bonville's, whoever he is, was flim-flammed out of something by Gantvort in Paris in 1902, and that Bonville's came to get it back. He picked Gantvort up last night in a stolen car, bringing his typewriter with him for God knows what reason. Gantfort put up an argument, so Bonfils bashed in his noodle with a typewriter, and then went through his pockets, apparently not taking anything. He decided that what he was looking for was in Gantfort's left shoe, so he took that away with him, and then, but there's no sense to the collar button trick, or the phony list, Yes, there is. That's our tenth clue. The one I'm going to follow from now on. That list was, except for Gantbert's name and address, a fake. Our people would have found at least one of the five people on it if it had been on the level. That list was faked up, put in the wallet with the clippings and $20 to make the place stronger, and planted in the road near the car to throw us off track. And if that's so, then it's a hundred to one that the rest of the things were cooked up too. From now on, I'm considering all nine of those lovely clues as nine bum steers. And I'm going just exactly contrary to them. I'm looking for a man whose name isn't Emil Bonfils and whose initials aren't either E or B, who isn't French, and who wasn't in Paris in 1902. A man who doesn't have light hair, doesn't carry a 45 caliber pistol, and has no interest in personal advertisements in newspapers. A man who didn't kill Gadford to recover anything that could have been hidden in a shoe or on a collar button. That's the sort of guy I'm hunting for now. Maybe that ain't so foolish. <laughs> you might be right at that. Suppose you are. What then? That Dexter kitten didn't do it. It cost her three quarters of a million. Her brother didn't do it. He's in New York. And besides, you don't croak a guy just because you think he's too old to marry your sister. Charles Gantvort? He and his wife are the only ones who make any money out of the old man dying before the new will was signed. We have only their word for it that Charles was home that night. The servants didn't see him between eight and eleven. You were there, and you didn't see him until eleven. But you and me both believe him when he says he was home all that evening. And neither of us think he bumped the old man off. Though, of course, he might. Who, then? This creeded Dexter was marrying Gantvort for his money, wasn't she? You don't think she was in love with him, do you? No. I figure from what I saw of her that she was in love with a million and a half. All right. Now, she isn't exactly homely, not by a long shot. Do you reckon Gantvort was the only man who ever fell for her? I got you. I got you. You mean there might have been some young fellow in the running who didn't have any million and a half behind him, and who didn't take kindly to being nosed out by a man who did. Maybe. Maybe. Well, suppose we bury all this stuff we've been working on and try out that angle. Suits me. Starting in the morning, then, we spend our time hunting for Gantvort's rival for the paw of this Dexter kitten. <laughs>
You have been listening to part one of The Tenth Clue, episode six of Adventures of the Federated Tech. Our cast consisted of the following players. Pete Lutz as the tech. John Bell as Charles Ganfort. Jason D. Johnson as Sergeant O'Gar. Jeff Moon as the detective. Mark Kalita as Whipple and The Voice. Frank Guglielmelli as Mr. Abernathy. Rhiannon McAfee as Creta Dexter. Music was by Dr. Ross Bernhardt. The Tenth Clue was written by Dashiell Hammett and appeared in the January 1st, 1924 issue of Black Mask Magazine. Mixing and mastering were performed by Daniel French of Fishbonius Productions. This program was produced under the supervision of Pete Lutz. This is Darren Rockold speaking. Join us again soon for part two of The Tenth Clue, episode seven of Adventures of the Federated Tech. Sixty-three audio. Rocket eighty-eight production.